hello, my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Apichapong Wirasatakul. There, we did it. We tried to say his name, so we can call him Joe from now on, right? Well, that's what, you know, <laughs> uh, people who pretend they're his friends call him. <laughs> yeah. But but I'm going to call him Apichapong. Apichapong, okay. Apichapong. I'll tr- or you can call him Joe, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, uh, you know what? That um, pronunciation will change as I say his name throughout, like an evolution, but there we go. We got it. And who is this person, Will? He is probably the most celebrated Thai filmmaker in history. Mm-hmm. Certainly. 100%. One of the... <laughs> what about the guy who directed Unkbak? <laughs> Well, he's number two, of yeah. course. It's incredible how they both emerged at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it? they did. He is helping each other. He's the uh, celebrated director of Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives, Tropical Malady, Cemetery of Splendor, Syndromes in a Century, and and other acclaimed films. Wait a minute, these sound like art films. Well, you know, it's interesting. You should say that. Hmm. Look, as I said before, he's the most celebrated Thai filmmaker in history. So he's not somebody who is in desperate need of defenders. Yeah. That said, he is somebody who I think there has been a fairly small but also fairly consistent backlash to ever since 2010, which you'll recall was the year that he won the Palme d'Or for Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives. What do you think this backlash comes from? Because his films are snorifying? Well, to some, he represents the epitome of a certain kind of slow, willfully opaque art house tendency. And there are always some reviews that have this kind of tone of the emperor has no clothes. Mm -hmm. And a reason that I wanted to do this episode was because I just recently revisited Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. Hadn't seen it since it came out. And I was kind of blown away by it. Many find him an intimidating filmmaker, but I was very struck by the welcoming and open spirit of the film. And I think his films, particularly Uncle Boon Me, but all of them, are very warm and very democratic viewing experiences if you let them be. And if you leave behind your ingrained ideas of what, how a story should be told and you just sort of go on its wavelength, they are not as complex and intimidating as they first appear. That's crazy. Uh, that came off the cuff. <laughs> Incredible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Off the cuff. There's no notes. Let's just knock that off the table. <laughs> But now, I don't think you were that familiar with a Pong before this. I mean, I'm sure I knew him. You knew him. This was, I think, kind of your first deep dive into him. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just kind of curious, what was your reaction? Well, I found his films slow. Yes. And very funny and humanizing and filled with monsters and weird and everything that you want when you go and see this, like, entombed art film. Like... The way that people talk about intellectual cinema, and I've said this before, that I'll sometimes take like an anti-intellectual bias or be like, the emperor has no clothes. Right. With Joe Apichapong, Joe Apichapong, yeah, that's his full name. (laughs) Uh, Someone who says that, I could easily point to like, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about this? Uh Like, it's all right there. Even if you don't want to go like deep dive on the surface. Like, I started with uh, Syndromes and a Century. Have you seen that one before? I saw it for the first time this week, actually. And I think it's a great one to start with. And I think that why some people feel off balance with him is that his films, again, are slow. Long, static shots of characters, sometimes doing nothing, Mm -hmm. with structure that sometimes you're unsure of where you're going. Mm -hmm. And the best part about Syndrome and a Century is that you could tell somebody, give it 45 minutes... And then it will suddenly grasp your interest and recontextualize everything that's come before. Mm -hmm. And in his films, he goes back to that structure over and over again. 
I would say I'm very much like him is that he seems to get bored with the kind of genres that he's playing with and he switches forms, especially in Uncle Boon Me, where he's gone on record saying, listen, I wanted to make this kind of film and then I wanted to make a monster movie and then I wanted to make a documentary and then I wanted to make something a little bit more modern day. And each segment, even though it's kind of shot in the same style, is constantly in communication with each other to add meaning to what you're seeing. And he also keeps compulsively returning to the same motifs and ideas. Mm. to the point where his most recent feature-length film, Cemetery of Splendor, strikes me as this kind of, like, culmination. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a best of, a, p- a pitch Yeah, upon. that's the one I probably like the least. It felt more of, like, an epilogue for the fans. Sure. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll get to that shortly, mm. because I think I, I think I like it more than you do. You know, when I say that I find something very warm and democratic about his films, I think it's twofold. In his movies, there's no distinction between the living and the dead, or between the visible world and you know, a multitude of other realities and uh, people and animals and, you know, spirits Mm. and corporeal beings. There's something I think very warm and tender about the way he depicts that. And also, he never tells you how to react to what you're seeing. So let's say there's a scene at a dinner table and a guy comes up and he looks like a monkey and he sits at the table. A real Chewbacca-like guy, if you will. And he says... I'm your long dead son. And you may want to laugh at that. And a pitch pong would tell you, that's okay. You can laugh at that. I mean, like his mother says, why did you let your hair grow so long? Mm-hmm. And that scene, it also starts with this monkey man being introduced as this terrifying figure in the dark, just <laughs> a shape with red eyes. And then he steps into the light and he's just some dude in a costume. Mm-hmm. Like he knows what he's doing. And I think that while audiences may be like, I don't know how to react to this. Mm-hmm. I think there's still intent there. And I think that's where the humanity comes out of it as well, because he likes these people and characters and situations. Yeah. And the movies are obviously loaded with symbolism. And, you know, if you read a bit about uh, what's going on in Thailand, they're full of political significance. But I don't think you win any prizes for decoding the films. No, he said it himself. He's a very David Lynchian figure. It's like, don't try. Like, what are you doing? You're just breaking the film when you try to do that. Yeah, it's like killing a butterfly Mm -hmm. by dissecting it. But at the same time, I do think that if people knew a little bit more about the films going in, I think they could enjoy it more. Because that was my problem. I read articles about him, and people speak in a very kind of vague and that kind of like art house speak sure. about emotions and stuff like that without just saying something like, you know, Syndrome of the Century is a love story, essentially almost like a sliding doors type situation. <laughs> That's what the movie is. So if you're aware of that and you're going in, then you can kind of be ready for it. Yeah. And I think that makes a big difference when people are going into these films I think with their hackles up either they're going to a film festival screening and they're like impress me Mm -hmm. and then they look around and other people are impressed and like why don't I get it or that's putting them to sleep or there's walkouts Mm -hmm. and I also think Cemetery of Splendor benefits from just a little bit of context about what's happening in Thailand I mean and he also tends to use the same characters over and Mm -hmm. over and over again so you know a pitchapong is really the Matt Farley of Thailand that's right (laughs) And, and he films in rural locations. He does. And, and there are monsters and everybody is deadpan. Wow, it really is like a Matt Farley movie. And, you know, static compositions. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and, you and kind very of, funny, too. Yeah, and you have to lean forward and kind of find the beauty in it. <laughs> that's know? right. And you're not sure if you're supposed to laugh or you're yeah. not. And, and it's like a dream. Yeah, who's alive, who's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so we should talk about Uncle Boon Me and his past lives, because I think that's the one that, while... 
a pitcher pong made a bunch of movies before that. That's the one that really like catapulted him into the art house royalty. This film chronicles the last days in the life of Boonmi, an aging man who's come to a hospice in northern Thailand for treatment. Uh, he's there with some members of his family, and you know, as I alluded to earlier, while they're having dinner, he's visited by the monkey spirit of his dead son, and he's also visited by the spirit of his dead wife. And there are lots of spirits floating around this um, yeah, he's about to die, as one of them says, so they're yeah. all kind of gathering around. Yeah, but they're not like vultures about to feed on his corpse or anything. They're welcoming in- him into the spirit world. And, you know, it doesn't unfold exactly like a story. Uh, there's an extraordinary scene where Boonmi visits a cave, which is something kind of like a portal into the spirit world. But, you know, a pitchet pong is a magical realist. So, you know, you see sparkles on the cave and you see uh, sparkly little fish and uh, strange looking rocks and stuff. And that's sort of evoking the spirit world. There's another very strange scene, which is it a dream? Is it one of Boonmi's past lives? It could be anything. It's of a ancient... Thai princess and the romantic encounter she has with an eel. A sexy eel, we should point out. A sexy eel. (laughs) Yeah. And again, you can see the scene. Feel free to laugh. It's okay. Yeah, I think (laughs) that he's laughing along with you and it's only his art house credentials that are making people unsure of like, am I not getting it? Am I not emotionally connecting it in a way that the other people are? Because laughter, when it comes to these kind of films, I feel is something that you know, someone who goes and sees these movies and maybe doesn't have that much context about it is kind of scared of. Like, if I laugh, will I look like I'm wrong? Like, yeah. I'm laughing in the wrong way? And yeah. I think because of that, there's a reaction of anger towards it. There's also a very strange scene, which is a photo montage, where you see uh, a bunch of men in military regalia who are, like, terrorizing a man in a gorilla suit. And, like, a much shittier gorilla suit yes. than the one that we saw before. And these are still images, and it just comes and it's much more documentary-like. It mm-hmm. just comes out of nowhere, seemingly, but it works on an emotional level. And it is also interesting when you realize that over the past 20 years, Thailand has been in a very difficult political situation. There have been multiple coups. It's currently under military junta. And a Pong is somebody who has struggled under censorship in the past. Mm-hmm. Syndromes in a century. Yeah, they wanted to cut four scenes out and it was like people kissing. Um, I think somebody gets a boner, someone drinking alcohol. A, a monk playing a guitar. Yeah, and they're like, nope, this is not happening. You can't release a film. And a Pong said like, well, I'm not cutting it for release. Like it's either going out completely in its entirety or it's not. And supposedly government officials in Thailand hate him, but... They can't do anything about it because he's too much of an art house darling, which brings attention to their film industry. Yeah, and so when he showed Syndromes in a Century in Thailand, he put like a black box over the offending scenes. Oh. <laughs> uh, sort of like what Todd Salons did in the movie Storytelling. I don't oh, know if you remember that. Or even that Takashi Miike did in Visitor Q, where he put like censor dots right, as if right, it would right. be like <sighs> if it actually shown in Japan and it was pornography. And then Uncle Boomy ends with a, a very strange scene in a more modern hospital, uh, an urban hospital, after Boonmi's death, which I certainly can't explain. 
Um, mm-hmm. but, but it makes sense on an emotional level. Yeah. Well, it also ends in the way almost all of his films end with a rockin' musical number. That's right. <laughs> when you watch a Pitch of Pong's film, especially if you watch them all in big block, like we did, man, those kind of recurring ideas mm. just smack you in the face. I don't necessarily recommend watching a bunch of them in a row. That's no. something I Well, I would definitely way. recommend starting with Syndromes and a Century. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most easy one to get into. It's also funny and it has even more than all of his other ones a kind of David Lynchian feel to it and also feels like a puzzle box movie in a fun way where you're not trying to crack it but like it'll have a scene where people are talking and the camera will pan back and suddenly someone will be staring right dead Mm -hmm. into the lens Mm -hmm. or like there's a famous very Lynchian shot that just goes toward an exhaust vent yeah as the sound just kind of envelops everything that you're seeing yeah should we say anything about what it's about or would people would it benefit from people going I think they should know what it's about where I mean it's a relationship in a hospital and again you don't want to spoil these things but at at the same time like not knowing stuff has kept me away Mm -hmm. so like it's a story of he said it was a story of his parents meeting they're two physicians and in the first part you see the story play out in a rural setting and in the second part you see it play out in an urban modernized setting and it's essentially the same story with slight changes here and there and that when you start seeing the second part you start rethinking of the first one i actually watch the second part and then rewatch the first part again huh. and i actually got a lot out of yeah, it yeah. because lines are set in different contexts different things are happening what does it all mean mm-hmm. well you're not going to crack that like that's not the point of the movie mm-hmm. but like it makes a fascinating watch that's also funny mm-hmm. it's very human and it's very sad at the same time yeah he's very interested in capturing like small moments mm-hmm. of human connection or uh, disconnect as the case may be, uh, you know, straight awkward behavior. And also, as always, you know, it's sometimes not entirely clear what is fantasy and what is reality. Oh, yeah. As in the case of a monk who had a, you know, a non-starting DJ career. <laughs> That's right. And like that structure also gives you a way to see like in the rural environment, the dentist likes to sing. But in the urban environment, he doesn't. And how does that affect how things go on almost in a domino effect? Mm -hmm. And that film also, again, ends with one hell of a banger uh, set to a bunch of people doing aerobics at a giant (laughs) square, which you see over and over and over again in a pitch of pong's movies he loves that like the choreograph kind of like dancing that everybody's doing it yeah, yeah i think it three or four times in the films that i watched you also watched tropical malady this i week, did which i didn't get to oh have you seen it before no i still haven't seen it so tropical malady is really interesting because the first half is a fairly straightforward gay love story and then the second half is those two main actors again but now it's an adaptation of a fable where one of them is hunted by a man who can turn into a tiger. And that's all it is. It never comes back to it. And it's just very clear separation between these two stories. And essentially, how do these two seemingly completely different things interact with each other? What emotional resonance do you get from these two two stories? And whether you're getting exactly what he's meaning to say or you're getting your own kind of interpretation doesn't really matter because... His films, again, aren't made to be cracked and Mm -hmm. to be solved. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's there on the surface and that you don't have to go digging too far into it to kind of figure it out. Mm -hmm. As long as you go to his films and you're aware that they are going to be cleanly sliced into these sections, I think that prepares a viewer to be able to take it in. Because you're not looking like, okay, wait, where's the thread going? What's happening? It's, no, you switch to something else. And Tropical Malady actually has 
opening credits on the first part and opening credits on the second part, mm-hmm. almost to tell you like, oh, this is essentially an anthology film. I alluded to the fact that Cemetery of Splendor is kind of a greatest hits mm-hmm. uh, comp- compilation before. You know, uh, oh, by the way, this is just a, a side note. I think Cemetery of Splendor, was this the first one he shot digital? Yes, it uh, was. Yeah. He actually said that Uncle uh, Boon Me was also his like goodbye to celluloid film in that he was throwing back to like the Thai monster movies he loved. Mm. And so his next one was moving into something different. Yeah, it's just interesting because I remember, you know, seeing Uncle Boon Me in a theater and like it was just such an overwhelming like visual and oral experience mm. like that the soundscape was so intense. Um and then Cemetery of Splendor looks it's beautiful, but it looks very different. Yeah. You know, it, it has much more of a, a colder mm-hmm. uh, digital look to it. At the same time, it is playing with colors and very bright primary mm-hmm. colors that are enveloping everything that you're seeing on screen at times. Now, I think Cemetery of Splendor feels to me like, I mean, I know that uh, he was having trouble with Thailand at the time. I think he moved from Thailand. I think he might live in South America now or somewhere else. The producers of the movie all had English names. So oh. I would say that's probably the case. Because this movie feels like a farewell, in addition to being a summation. Once again, it takes place at a hospice, this one a temporary hospice, which has been set up to help these soldiers who have all fallen into a mysterious slumber. Soldiers being another thing that he revisits in every single one of his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Boon Me alludes to the fact that uh, I, I've killed too many communists in mm-hmm. my day. So it's bad karma what's happening to mm-hmm. me. But these soldiers are in a mysterious sleep. Nobody knows why it is. They've set up these uh, therapeutic lights that apparently help them with their bad dreams. Mm -hmm. And these lights are these big, long things that bend at the top. No one can see what I'm miming out right now. (laughs) And they slowly change color, red or green or purple. Uh, They're all cared for by Jinjira, who's a volunteer who was disabled in a motorcycle accident. An actor that's also appeared in every single one of his films. And she walks very uh, deliberately with canes. And one of her legs, because of the disability, is shorter than the other. Mm -hmm. And Jinjira... Jira meets two young women who nonchalantly inform her that, oh, they're princesses from another realm. Yeah. We're not wearing our makeup right now. Yeah. They're like, would you like a uh, walnut as they're eating them? (laughs) And in fact, this hospice is built over an ancient but also parallel realm where soldiers who have died are fighting each other in this other realm. And they are kind of doing the bidding of various monarchs. And the monarchs are sapping the energy from our current present day soldiers. And, and using their energy in their battles. And they say, oh, well, at least their bodies are doing something useful instead of just falling asleep for no reason. From what I've read, it is apparently the most political of his films because, you know, the the symbolism that you read about Thailand's under this military dictatorship and Thai, Thailand's citizens are kind of zombified and they're at the service of these powerful people. But it also strikes me as an optimistic film in a way, because what it's saying is the past is always present and many realities exist simultaneously. You know, nothing, nothing is permanent and uh, and everything is permanent. Even then, things can move forward like Jinjira is having a relationship with an American who just recently moved to Thailand. Mm -hmm. Now, he doesn't factor very much in the movie. I don't even believe we see his face. We just see the back of his head. Mm -hmm. But she talks about him a lot, about the idea that, like, she can move on with her life, and it doesn't necessarily just have to be Thailand that she's limited to. Like, 
there's stuff beyond those borders. And, you know, maybe that's not what he meant, but that's one way to interpret it. Yeah, and there's one scene where, you know, one of these princesses is leading Jinjira around the grounds, and she's saying, oh, look at this. This is where the palace is, mm-hmm. and this is where this is. Like, like you know... Uh, but you don't see any of the stuff. Any of it. It's just in a forest, and she's like, wow! He's like, oh, you gotta walk over this, and then she, like, mimes going over. And then that, that scene ends with a scene w- where she shows her injury and then the other character licks up juice all across her leg. Yeah. Which so, I found very moving. Yes. And I'm not sure I could explain why, but... Mm-hmm. But it's just like acting, the way that it's played <laughs> out. Like, if you let yourself be lost in these movies, and again, because they move at their own tempo, you're going to bring your own baggage to it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like... They are funny. They are fun. And there is humanity there to be found. They're not cold parallels of what's going on in Thailand that you're (laughs) supposed to be like, okay, I get it because of this. Yeah. Like, it's all right there to be discovered by a viewer. Mm -hmm. How far can he take this style? Like, when you say it's a culmination of everything that he's done before, I agree with you. And it's the most extreme one as Mm -hmm. well. Like, it's the slowest. It's the one where the shots are, you know, partly because it's about sleeping men. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's one that wants to put you in, like, a somnambulant state. And at the same time, it's, like, you know, the one that rarely tells you what's going on or where you are. You're supposed to make these associations. In Syndrome and a Century, a character says, this is a flashback, then you go to a flashback. None of that connective tissue is given in uh, Cemetery of Splendor. I would not say that Cemetery of Splendor should be your first to pitch upon. Advanced lessons. Yeah. Um, If I had to give an order, Syndrome and a Century, Tropical Malady, and then Uncle Boon Me, and then Cemetery of Splendor. I have not seen Blissfully Yours or the documentary he made before that, but I hear Blissfully Yours is actually much more conventional in the way that it's presented. And then if you want to watch The Adventures of Iron Pussy, <laughs> yes, which right. is the outlier of his filmography, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, while he was I waiting, wasn't in the mood for it this week. <laughs> uh, while he was waiting to get the money for Tropical Malady, he and his friend put together a genre pastiche to tie action cinema of their youth uh, the Adventures of Iron Pussy, whose one of the main jokes is a man is dubbed by a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a bunch of crazy stuff that I go, all right, all right. Someone in high school made this Looks and thought exhausting. it was funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun that he has that movie in him yeah. in the sense that like it's not all this kind of slow and meditative stuff. Did you ever see any of, any of his art installations? I have seen a few. I mean, I remember the Art Gallery of Ontario had one mm-hmm. uh, briefly. Um, you know, I'm not... Uh, uh, an expert in art installations. Mm. But I mean, I think they are interesting to me because, you know, his artistic practice, the barriers between, you know, his installation work and his photography and his uh, moving image work, like it's porous. Yeah. And I know that Uncle Boon Me, you know, there are other Boon Me related projects in other artistic media that were surrounding it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that's interesting. And, you know, I think it's one reason why he is not as prolific a filmmaker um because he's splitting his time between cinema and art yeah yeah and and like maybe he doesn't quite see a distinction between all of them mm-hmm. it's like one free-flowing thing i don't know i'm just speculating well i'm curious to see where his career goes from here like does he continue to just kind of revisit these same themes over and over again or does yeah. he move beyond it or do something in america like i don't know a buddy cop comedy. yeah buddy cop comedy <laughs> i feel like you know tilda swinton wrote about him in that book that came out mm. feels like she would be involved in this in, in some 
form, whatever his career may hold. But I'm excited to see what it is. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that people listening to this check out his films Mm -hmm. and kind of warm up to them because they're not as intimidating as, I'm trying to think of another filmmaker that I don't like that is kind of lame, Uh, um, but is very well, you know, let's let's make people angry. I know. Who's, who's, uh, I don't know. A, a pitch a pong of um, yeah I don't know I don't I don't have it filling I your like blank all films here yeah that's right there is no bad movies <laughs> yeah you may even say there's no such thing as a bad movie available bi-weekly we, on SoundCloud we, we don't subscribe to that philosophy <laughs> in these parts so as per usual you can send us emails at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and this week on our Patreon we picked a name out of a hat to <laughs> pick the movie that we were gonna do for the episode and to find that out you'll have to listen I'm not even gonna tell people what it is nice. because we kind of talk about it in the introduction mm-hmm. but it's fun and and we not only talked about the movie, but we talked about a whole kind of uh, genre and setting that that movie came out of. Mm-hmm. So that's $5 a month. Uh, you can become a Patreon subscriber at uh, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And that was our 100th episode. You know, like we... we that was our 100th episode? That was our 100th episode? episode, yeah. Oh, I thought we were going to do... Um... I know. That's why we're going to do our 101st episode. Okay. It's going to be... Me and Will's top 10 movies of all time. Holy shit. Yeah, so we're going to get in there and we're going to talk about it. And, you know, it's special. It's 101. So I was going to tell you that we're going to do that. And then I'm like, oh, he already watched the movie. Let's just get it over with. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, hopefully check that out. Do we have any letters this week? We do have some letters. Our first letter is from Kevin Roy. And he goes, hello. If I'm not mistaken, just talked about something called the Hamilton Trash Cinema in a previous episode. This coming March, the HTC will be hosting an overnight marathon at a theater in my city, Ottawa. I'm interested in attending, but doubt I'll have the stamina to watch VHS horror movies for 12 straight hours. Oh, man. man. So I wanted to submit the list of films to you guys in the hope that one or both of you has seen some of them and can point me in the direction of something worthwhile. The film's as follows. Now, I know about this. Because I'm friends with the guy who does Hamilton Trash Cinema. And I actually put him in contact with someone who's going to make a poster for this event. And it's happening in Ottawa, my hometown. So it's tons of fun. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. If it's not in Hamilton, is it still the Hamilton Trash Cinema? Nope. So, this is one of those philosophical questions. This is a funny story is he only called it Hamilton's Trash Cinema. And I think that he associated Ben Ruffett, the guy who runs it, as just Trash Cinema. And, like, I started calling it Hamilton's Trash Cinema. And I think that it kind of... I don't know if it was me or other people did, but it kind of caught on that way. Oh, nice. So, the movie You're a kingmaker. (laughs) I don't think it was me. Maybe I could be completely wrong about this. The films are Mutilations, Dream a Little Evil, Scream Dream, Marley's Revenge... Satan plays a soap opera from hell, Attack of the Beast Creatures, Blood Hunter, and Soul Tangler. What a lineup that okay, is. Okay, now, I have Soul Tangler on DVD. And you haven't watched it. I haven't watched Love it Love it. Um, so much fun. I haven't seen any of the other ones. So, I've seen Satan plays a soap opera from hell because we showed it at the Laser Blast oh, Film Society. Of course you did. I knew the title was familiar. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that one's really good. Yeah. That one is. That's the anthology it? film, That's the right? anthology yeah. one. The one that uh, one of the segment stars Slim Pickens for some reason, oh. who's haunted by um, uh, EC horror style zombies. <laughs> that yeah. one is so much fun. That's a really weird movie. Uh, Attack of the Beast Creatures. I did this on an episode of No Such Thing as a Bad Movie. And that one is also, if you're in the right mood, tons of fun because it's about a bunch of people who go to an island and are attacked by little creatures for 90 minutes now the other one i've heard of mutilations i hear it's tons of fun i've heard of marley's revenge the monster movie mostly because a gift was going around where they built a giant kind of like cardboard monster to chase after people 
I've never heard of Blood Hunter, Dream a Little Evil, or Scream Dream. And that just shows the like, mm, the great curating that's going on in this list. Because you will never see these movies on the big screen ever again. It's just great to know there are still so many worlds left to conquer. <laughs> and I can assure you that if he sticks to what he does at his screenings, he's going to bring the original tapes of these movies, <laughs> put them in a VCR, and that's what's going to play up on the screen. I believe it's happening at the Mayfair, which is run by Lee DeMar, the guy who uh, directed Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. So he's definitely going to want to put it on VHS and play it to the um, awaiting audience. The Mayfair has the best programming. I've unfortunately never been there because I've never spent enough time in, in Ottawa. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> uh, but, you know, hopefully sometime I will go because they look great. You know, Lee DeMar used to have a show on Carleton University Radio that was called The Drunken Master Review, <laughs> and it was essentially what podcasts would become, where just three dudes talking to each other and just laughing about movies. Nice. I was so excited. I would run to, like, the dial, like I was in, like, the 1940s, when I'd be at my dad's house, which is the only place I could pick it up, and, like, turn to it to, like, hear them talk about movies. They'd have contacts you could call up, and I, I remember winning prizes and, like, getting tickets to, I kid you not, Clerks too. Oh, nice. <laughs> and like, Lee DeMar was a guy that like I found really inspiring. He was shooting movies, doing the stuff that he loves. And he extended that into not only a career in films, but also into running his own cinema. Where when it started, they used to do something called, I, I think maybe like Drunken Master Screening, where they would show his 16 and 35 millimeter prints of Hong Kong movies. Mm. I remember looking and being like, I moved away! Like I can't, like the Yung Bao film License to Steal on 16 millimeter. Oh, it would have been so so great but you know he's doing god's work now and if you're in ottawa or live around ottawa definitely check out this night because it's going to be like legendary you will never experience anything like that like us doing laser blast i've always wanted to do an all-night movie marathon and i would never have the courage to play these films because <laughs> like but ben ruffett like he loves it and like i've been in those audiences i wrote an article about it it's very special to experience this shit with the crowd. So, And the next letter is from Ted C. Rowland, and he goes, I initially found your podcast through Will's presence in the left podcast ecosystem. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I've since become a devoted listener to your musings about filmmakers, both familiar and less so. I have stopped listening to Michael and us. No, he didn't write that. <laughs> See, Justin, I've told you, Michael and us is good for, for it this is. podcast. <laughs> Having voices about contemporary and classic films whose ethical lenses toward film viewing are at least as similar to mine is a heartening experience for me, so I wanted to write in and firstly, thank you for doing your podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. Secondly, I wanted to bring up an odd idiosyncratic detail I've noticed in my years delving into giallo films and other Euro trash. Have you guys ever noticed the mainstay staple alcohol in 70s Italian horror and exploitation that is J&B Scotch? At first the ubiquity was amusing, then mysterious but I never found an explanation. Is this something you guys have ever noticed or maybe even heard a reason behind its ever-present haunt? In my heart I hope that it's something at least tawdry if not disgusting but in my head I know it's something mundane like J&B invested in someone or others production company and was readily available at all times. Anyway, I have no suggestions or expectations, so this is the end of the email, Ted. Uh, that's interesting. I have you ever noticed it? it? No, I haven't. I have not only noticed it over and over <laughs> again, it appears in Impossible Horror. Oh, man. One of the characters is drinking J&V Scotch, only for that reason that it appears in all that Euro trash film. Folks, this is what separates the men from the boys. This is a real <laughs> filmmaker here. He... Like, you know, a lot of filmmakers, they, you know, pay facile homage to their inspirations. But you. <laughs> you but I have to say that this was given by my friend Duncan. He's like, you know, he's trying this movie. I'm giving you J&B Scotch because, you know, and I'm like, I know. And I like put it in the movie. Oh, I love it. And the reason that it is there, I don't know. I think they just paid um, 
the company's maybe like a little fee to put it into the movie. And like you watch Giallo's and it's all over the place. J and V, like that's the only alcohol they drink. Mm. So uh, yes, I don't have a better reason, but I am now giving you a reason to buy Impossible Horror on (laughs) Blu-ray. And the next letter is from Michael Willis. And he goes, Dear movie guys, first time, short time. I want to keep my email brief. I'm a new listener to the podcast and burning through your back catalog. I also can't wait to get stuck in the Patreon episodes, which honestly are the better episodes. I think so. Yeah. I came across your show when I Googled Godfrey Ho podcast. Oh, yes. Yes. This guy's after my heart. I want to thank you for reigniting my love of cinema. My wife is not so happy as I now am trying to revisit movies like The Devil Bat with her. (laughs) (laughs) Devil Bat. Wow. The Bella Lugosi classic. And then you could throw on your like, wait, wait, wait. Maybe the follow-up will be better, The Devil Bat's Daughter. <laughs> you know, uh, just because The Devil Bat came up, my favorite parts of that movie are, you see, Bella Lugosi plays the kindly doctor mm-hmm. who has been cheated out of money, and so he creates an aftershave that attracts his horrible killer bat to kill all the people who have wronged him. And whenever he gives the aftershave, he says, goodbye. <laughs> you know, as, as if he's doing a death sentence. It's beautiful acting on Bella's part. Great poverty row horror, and there's not, well, great yeah, strong yeah. words. Uh, Compared to the other Poverty Row horror films, it's like a Stone Cold Frankenstein-like Probably classic. Probably Bella's best Poverty Row film. Yeah, compared to something like um, The Invisible Ghost. Uh, the Invisible Ghost Joseph okay. H. Lewis directed that one, so there's a little bit of style to it. Yeah, I say The Corpse Vanishes and Bowery at Midnight. Those mm. are kind of the bad ones. But you stay away from stuff like Revenge of the Zombies, because oh, P.U. It seems a tradition for writers to suggest topics. I haven't heard you tackle horror anthologies like those made by Amicus Studios. Is there any episode in the future? Kind regards, Mike, Perth, Western Australia. Okay, I have a question before we get to his question. Why do we have so many Australian listeners? Hmm. Like, is there some genre fixture on Twitter or something like that that shared us? Because I feel like if I had to pick one country where we get the most letters from, it's Australia. Interesting. Or maybe it's just because... Australia seems so foreign to us that it like locks in my mind when someone says they're from there. Maybe our iTunes algorithm is good over there. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously this person found us by searching the master Godfrey Ho. I am so happy that we show up on the list if you search Godfrey Ho. That makes me like... I'm, I'm very proud in that because I feel like there's tons of Godfrey Ho podcasts out there, but they're probably like bad movie podcasts where they're like, ah, oh, isn't this lame? Are there ones who, has there been a podcast where they go through every Godfrey Ho I movie? I feel like there is. Yeah. Like some kind of Jess Franco style website. I, I'm sure I stumbled upon it when I was doing research for the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're probably much more knowledgeable than we were on that subject, but I'm glad that we can be like an intro to people to discover his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't checked out that episode, definitely do because, whoo, what a career that guy has. So horror anthologies, Amicus films. I mean, I, I have no experience with Amicus films at yeah, all. Yeah, neither do I. I think I've seen one of them, but the problem is, is that they kind of like tumble in my mind because you have stuff like Asylum and I think one of them is called Garden of Terror and they all have like fun names like Peter Cushing is in them. So Christopher Lee shows up, but I was never a, an anthology guy only because like a bad anthology can really sink uh, like a movie. Like, it's like, ugh, I gotta sit through this? Well, it's also, like, I mean, it's just conventional wisdom about anthology films, horror or not, that there's always at least one in there that really doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it would be interesting to do an episode on anthology films just in general. Mm-hmm. Like, like what, what does it mean? Like, what is its form? And when does it work the best? 
When one director does all the films, like Creepshow, George Romero. Right. I mean, you know, the famous examples are like Rogo Peg with mm-hmm. by Rosalini, Godard, Pasolini. Well, or... anthology films were such a massive thing around the time of the French New yeah. Wave because all these young filmmakers got a chance to get a bunch of money to play with and put all the films together. I mean, what is it called? It's the one famous story in it is the Fellini one. You know which one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I do. I'm, I can't quite remember. Ah, Spirits is in the title, but it's not Juliet's of the Spirits, which is a Fellini movie. Yeah. And his film, which stars Michael McDowell, like would often show on its own. Mm-hmm. While the other ones, I know one of them is directed by Louis Maul. Don't get talked about that much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know how I would tackle that. It'd have you tough. ever seen New York Stories? Oh, yes. I have seen New York Stories. That like Scorsese one is almost too good yeah like i've heard people say like that's their favorite thing scorsese has made because it captures like the art scene i think it's is it nick nolte or chris christopherson i always get both of them confused and though i mean that one ends with your favorite woody allen yeah i mean the woody segment's fine yeah uh, but the the middle one by francis coppola oh a real slog (laughs) yeah it's weird that they didn't put the scorsese one at the end because then people would probably leave on more of a high but (laughs) i mean we have to talk about our favorite anthology of all time four rooms oh four rooms (laughs) wow yeah you and i watched that a while ago did we do an episode on it I don't know if we did. Yeah. Maybe we did. That seems like the sort of thing we would do. I mean, I hope everybody watched it because it's a New Year's film and it played on New Year's. Yeah. that You know, we often watch some garbage of that vintage. <laughs> yes. You know what I love about Four Rooms? The Tarantino segment is so full of itself. Oh, my God. It's like a bunch of long takes just showing off. And it's just Tan- Tarantino rambling about an episode of uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents that he saw. Oh, you're a bellboy. That's kind of like the Jerry Lewis movie, The Bellboy. It's one of Jerry's better films. And that's a film that famously Harvey Weinstein went in and cut out all like the good stuff, especially the first segment that was uh, directed by Alice Anders. Anders. Yeah. The first segment like doesn't even make sense. It doesn't. It just kind of ends as if they're just trying to rush through it. I mean, the funnest one in that one is a Robert Rodriguez one because it's like a big slapstick buffoonery as Tim Ross mugs so much that it feels like he's going to burst out of the screen. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> the wacky detective made 70 million fucking dollars. Daddy is fucking asses in fucking seats. Bruce Willis is there too? <laughs> oh man. I don't know why I remember so much of that. Because <laughs> <laughs> you watch it over and over again. I had the Four Rooms book, which is <laughs> ubiquitous at every used bookstore, like the script yeah, of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Tarantino mania was at its peak when that came out. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would definitely try to do an anthology I think we episode. just did it. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> Especially horror anthologies, because I think that's what is like the most popular. And what does it mean to give a chance to somebody to appear in a feature film? Yeah. I mean, you know, I have a bias against short films that, that I've shared before on this podcast. So They're uh, not real movies? Yeah, they're not my favorite, <laughs> because I feel the way that people approach them is a way that... I can't always connect with so next week man we've done a lot of kind of like you know art house auteurs or more of our niche interests so what are we going to do now well you know when a pitch pong won the palm d'Or for uncle boon me who led the con jury <laughs> that gave him the prize uh everybody knows that tim burton that's right and you know tim burton has a new movie coming out called dumbo man what a cast danny devito michael keaton coming back with burton i hope they get that batman beetlejuice magic and you know tim burton was probably the first director i ever knew and loved that most kids our age yeah. ever became aware of either him or spielberg mm-hmm. it's those two probably tim burton because like i mean i think i fell in love with his aesthetic in a movie he didn't direct which was the nightmare before christmas right but all the other stuff like batman or 
Beetlejuice. Like, it was so kind of his yeah. that I became aware of what a director does. So, I think a lot of us have felt a little disillusioned by Tim Burton. Um, I think Dumbo is going to pull it back. Does, oh, yeah. Does, does Tim Burton, like, does he have a lot of debt? Because why would he make Dumbo? You know, Dumbo's kind of an outsider, just just like I am, Tim Burton. <sighs> so, what movies should we watch? Oh, wait, let's watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yes, that's uh, a great one. Um, Not a part of my childhood. That only saw like five years ago. Oh, interesting. Because Pee- I think it might never, be his best movie. I don't Pee-wee know. was never a big part of my like growing up. Mm-hmm. But um, the original Frankenweenie was. I remember mm-hmm. me being disappointed when I saw it. Uh, what is a later bad Tim Burton movie? Oh, man. Planet you, of the Apes. No. Dark Shadows. Oh, God. <laughs> Have you seen it? Yes. Okay. I saw it. We don't need to watch it again. Um, Miss Pennigrew's Home. Yeah. For... Oh, let's watch that. I, I haven't seen I it. I haven't seen it either. Well, I know what it's going to be. So. Yeah. Oh, wait. What did. I uh, used to, without fail, see Tim Burton movies. And then Miss Pettigrew was the one that broke me. <laughs> really? I saw Big Eyes. I saw... Oh, well, I haven't even seen Big Eyes. That. I didn't even see that one. And I was a big fan of Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander. And they were supposed to direct that film. Right. And, and they wrote Ed Wood, of course. Yeah, and Ed Wood, which... No, I think that's my favorite Tim Burton movie for obvious it's reasons. Great. Yeah. So that's what we're doing next week. Tim Burton. Will we come out and be like, you know what? Looking back, I feel like his newer movies really comment on the society that we're living in now. That's right. Nope, that's not going to happen. But I'm interested to go back and see if his earlier films still have the magic Mm -hmm. that they had when I was a kid. Yeah. We're not going to do Batman because I think we've talked about Batman enough, haven't we? (laughs) I think so too. All right. So that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Of course, we all know that Roger Ebert was a Pulitzer Prize winning film critic uh, and a fine prose stylist, but none of that mattered because really what he was was the fat guy who argued with the bald guy on TV. A hundred percent. And that's like, what a film critic is. I understand now. Take my James AG books and throw them in the fire. <laughs> exactly. They they gave a thumbs up and they gave a thumbs down. I don't even need to watch them talk about it. I just need to see that section and then I'm good. Yeah. yeah. And they popularized the notion that reasonable men could fight on TV. <laughs> Who didn't like each other in day-to-day life. And also that two TV stars didn't have to be good looking. <laughs> that was very democratic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What does this mean? Could we maybe do what they did? And by that, I mean just appear in front of camera and talk about movies? Well, last week week we experimented a little bit with uh, introducing a regular video segments mm-hmm. um, where we talk about new movies yeah uh and essentially we do what uh ebert and i always want to say ebert and roper but it's siskel Cause, and ebert because that those are the ones we grew up because <laughs> i start saying ebert and then i'm like well where does it go it's not ebert and siskel <laughs> ebert and Rupert. it's funny that the ebert became the first name after siskel passed away uh, uh yeah <laughs> Is it really funny or is it, it was clearly, it was clearly Ebert was going, okay, no more being under the thumb, Mm -hmm. literally and metaphorically of this other guy. I'm the star and let's get this, this no name, this doofus (laughs) from my newspaper who I could steamroll. Roper. Uh, So me and you are now appearing in front of a camera talking about movies. Is this a dream that you always had as a child watching Siskel and Ebert going, I wish I could do that. Uh, Oh, sure. As a kid, that Mm -hmm. seemed like a dream job going on TV, talking about movies, being a film critic. Yeah. Either Ebert or Leonard Malton were Mm -hmm. definitely like the careers that I would (laughs) have wanted when I was six. Yeah. (laughs) You're a big Malton head. I love Malton. I I, I only like Malton now. Because I've been able to, like, get into his non-populist stuff. Yeah. Because, like, the things he's really passionate about, like, 
uh, slapstick shorts and animation. Yeah. Like, that's where his heart lies, and the other stuff, he did it for work. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, he's very charming. Uh, I, I think the Malton reference guide is basically Yeah, just throw it in the garbage. Yeah. yeah. He didn't write most of it. Yeah. If I could get a book of only his criticism, that I would be more interested than yeah. this, like, all-encompassing thing. Well, he's written, Malton has written a few books. I have some on my shelf, he, like, about the history of animation. And... Yeah, and, and he's also done ones where it's, like, his interviews mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, old-time Hollywood people. Yeah, he did one that was just conversations and kind of bio with character actors. I think it was like, who's that guy or something like that? And I mean, Malton was uh, pen pals with Mo Howard. I mean, <laughs> what what more could you want from him? What man? is there not to love there? A great guy. But where do you think us doing this video, like, is there a place for that now on the internet? Videos of two unhandsome people? Shouldn't in this I democratic th- world it just be handsome people that are up there? Well, first of all, I thought I looked pretty good in the video. <laughs> yep, okay. Um, Jeez. And, and Man, it starts now, the ego. <laughs> and seeing the two of us there really appealed to my vanity. <laughs> I liked watching myself talk and hearing myself talk, and I liked seeing me interact with my good friend Justin. Were little uh, goofy graphics could appear between us. That was very well edited, <laughs> I have to say, by Justin DeClue. Where do you think like a video can take us that's different from our podcast, though? Because like in that sense, it is like us talking about new movies in the same way we would do in our podcast. Here's what I think. You know, mm-hmm. people are going to be on YouTube. They're going to be looking at the angry video game nerd. Mm-hmm. They're going to be looking at the nostalgia critic. <laughs> and they're like, I need another white guy with glasses. And Maybe two white guys with glasses. They'll click on us and they'll say, boy, these guys are, are something else. They're handsome. <laughs> and, and let's look. And then they'll say, oh, what's this? An episode on a pitch it pong. Uh, where is that cool? <laughs> yep. Uh, let's try that. And pretty soon we've got a brand new art house convert. <laughs> That's right. Leaving the nostalgia critic in the dust. <laughs> I feel like the next level, though, is probably appearing on some public access show at like 1 a.m. I actually do think like we should, I mean, we, I, neither of us have time, but no, we've talked think? about this. We would love to do that. I think it would be great to just do a one-off like maybe, and, <laughs> or and, and if it goes well, maybe just do it weekly. The idea of having our own public access show is so exciting to me. <laughs> yeah, it's so exciting. Like put us at 1 a.m., but can you imagine like we just have to sit down and like at the public access place, so they have cameras to shoot us like multiple oh, yeah. angles, and then I could even say like, oh, just give me the footage. I'll just edit it and I'll throw it like you can just air that afterwards and you know we would reach a whole other audience with public access because you mean people who don't know how to use the internet watching at 1am uh, okay look TV people yeah. watch yes and and because there are fewer channels on TV more people watch them <laughs> there's a lot of channels on TV you mean like if I have my radio antenna and I'm trying to get channels I think like there would be a ton of middle aged people who mm-hmm. would say hey I saw you on TV <laughs> yeah that's true and that's the next level of fame that you want and right? then pretty soon we'll be hosting the Canadian Screen Awards <laughs> that's our final goal <laughs> me and you up on that stage I actually think we deserve to host the Canadian Screen Awards <laughs> why so, that because uh, we're we're <laughs> good yeah <laughs> and, and we're look at the video look at yeah, the video yeah yeah why I mean, wouldn't you want that and we're at least as famous as those beaverton people <laughs> from last year <laughs> if you have some uh if you're an eccentric millionaire who has a cable station we would love to be on it but until then you can find us on youtube uh search film trap which is kind of like the home of the important cinema club and you'll find the episodes there and the first one is up and we talk about Glass, Dan and Ollie, and the Fire Festival doc that played on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I think that every two weeks we'll put a new one up and it'll be two movies. Yeah. Maybe three, but like, that's still a lot of work mm-hmm. to see just to talk about that until somebody actually starts paying us to just do the videos. Uh, Annapurna Pictures, Megan Ellison, <laughs> make us your official in-house critics.